0: Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's Private Equity Practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization.
1: Hi, this is Todd Kinney with BDO's Private Equity Practice, and I'd like to welcome our listeners to another episode of Private Equity Perspectives. Uh, Today, I'm very lucky to have two of my favorite lady dealmakers in the uh, middle market PE ecosystem. Uh, I've got Gretchen Perkins with Huron Capital and Kathleen Loster with Silverleaf Partners. Ladies, thank you for being my guest today.
2: Thank you. Thanks for inviting us.
1: Absolutely. uh, why don't we start with Gretchen? Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your firm and what you do.
2: Sure. Thanks, Todd. And thanks, BDO. Um, I am with Huron Capital Partners. We are a lower middle market private equity fund. We have two strategies. We invest on a control basis, and we also invest on a non-control equity basis. We like businesses with uh, revenues from 20 to $200 million based in the U.S. and Canada. And we have three vertical. In which we invest, those being consumer products and services, business services, and specialized industrials businesses.
1: Kathleen?
0: Um, Silverleaf Partners is an institutional brokerage firm providing capital introduction corporate advisory and brokerage services to institutional clients. Um, Personally, myself within Silverleaf, I focus on lower middle market private equity. I'm generally sector agnostic and tend to play with deals that are uh, special situations, hard to place, and unique set of circumstances.
1: Got it. Well, both of your firms are, are, are great friends of BDO, and uh, we're, we're big fans of uh, what you're doing out in the marketplace. Um, I guess to kick it off, we all know, uh, you know, PE firms have record amounts of dry powder and debt is uh, certainly easily accessible, but with that comes pretty fierce competition and uh, valuations that are, uh, you know, certainly frothy. Um, so, Kathleen, I guess I'll start with you. The, the million-dollar question is, you know, how can investors overcome the competition and really the high valuations and, you know, to find a way to put their money to work?
0: right. So um, I, you know, there's more than just the dollar price on the deal and, um, you know, whether it's an auction or a more uh, quietly marketed deal, you know, I always tell my clients that we're not necessarily going to go with the highest bidder. We want to go with the most attractive bid. And so there's a lot of things that you can do as a buyer to make yourself more attractive. And some of those um, areas that I would, you know, recommend focusing on is, you know, Value added areas where you have strengths, synergies with existing companies that you may have, Um, you know, for example, you know, perhaps this is a food distributor and you as a buyer have a good experience in building brands and, and making, expanding those beyond where their current niches are. Um, Other things that you can look at is uh, structural concerns. So, you know, really look at what the what the seller's needs are. You know, do they want to, you know, perhaps you enter initially in a non-controlled position with the idea of growing over time or there's perhaps it's, it's an outright sale, but there's an opportunity for the seller to participate someone in the upside down the road and then you know finally um, this is very much a relationship driven business and so you know there's just no shortcuts in terms of developing a reputation in the market and making sure that you're visible um, you know, particularly with family offices, I find that you have to balance the need for secrecy and privacy with not being so hidden that nobody can find you. Because if you're only seeing a handful of deals a year, then you're not going to be, uh, you know, investing in, in the best opportunities.
1: Yeah. Good points. Good points. So I guess, Gretchen, same thing. How's, uh, how's Huron getting deals done?
0: Yeah, this is a challenging
2: market indeed, with uh, with the valuations being so high right now. Um, we employ multiple strategies. We actively court um, and market to independent sponsors for uh, proprietary deals that they sign up, and we we like to back independent sponsors. Those are good. Uh, strategies for us. Uh, we create our own proprietary deal flow through a strategy we call our exec factor program. And this is these are scenarios where we back executives who have you know, multiple years of experience in a particular industry and now want to go out on their own and acquire smaller businesses, lower middle market companies in their area of expertise. And we partner with them Um, And we are committed to them. They are committed to us. And we go forth on a strategy to find companies to invest in and being uh, we're a better buyer because we have a rock star executive in a certain space. uh, to help us get to the companies we want to get to, and um, the executive is a better buyer because they're backed by a firm with our capabilities and our track record and our capital. So we call those exec factors, and we have numerous those in our portfolio right now. might take 12 months. It might take 24 months for us to find that first platform company in which to invest in partnership with the executive. And then after that, it's, it's typically off to the races in terms of generating at ad- on deal flow for that that platform. And then we also market um, very broadly to all of the other sources of deals in our ecosystem, the accounting firms, the law firms, the wealth managers, the boutique um, brokers and investment bankers. Um, And through all of those strategies, we're able to to generate, um, to your point, Kathleen, a really large number of deals coming into the funnel at the top. So we don't ever have to get too picky and we can really focus on the deals where Bringing our resources, our operating resources and our operating partners, as well as our experience helps us get the deals done in this in this market.
1: Well, I think being uh, creative and thorough is uh, is is the uh, the motto there. Um, you, you touched on add ons. Maybe we'll turn to, to that topic. Uh, certainly, I think, according to PitchBook, um Nearly thirty percent of uh, PE-backed companies uh, now undertake it at least one add-on acquisition, and that's up from I think it was about twenty percent in the early two thousands. So, uh, we'll, I'll throw this one out to both of you. Maybe Gretchen first. You know, Huron has obviously announced a few add-ons recently. Why have? Why do you think add-ons have become so popular in the middle market?
2: Yeah, add-ons have been a real engine of growth for us, and um, you know, frankly, it's it's tough to achieve organic growth in a low GDP environment um, certainly uh, we're making uh, growth we're accomplishing growth through bringing our operating resources but one of the key principles that we have for shareholder value creation is doing multiple add-on acquisitions and so that's a key focus for us and um, and again it's a it's an ability for us to generate generate higher, than uh, market growth rates because, as I said, it's challenged to do so just organically based on this economic environment.
1: Sure. I guess, Kathleen, uh, same topic. Uh, Have the Silverleaf team noticed uh, an uptick in in PE add-ons? And um, I guess the, the second part is, you know, are there any specific industries where you're seeing this occur more often?
0: No doubt about it. Um, Platform companies are kind of like the new uh, buzzword, I would say. And, um, you know, why is this the case? Well, you know, kind of going back to your previous question, um, it's an opportunity for uh, acquirers to realize synergies with their existing holdings and so therefore um, allow them to be a little more competitive in in an acquisition process. Um, you know, with regards to the types of industries that I'm seeing this uh, play out most commonly, it's, it's the ones that are certainly more fragmented right at the moment, um, often more old school, traditional industries uh, where you've got a lot of family-run businesses, um, scenarios where there wasn't a lot of vertical in- integration historically. And, um, you know, perhaps it's a sector where just doesn't hold a lot of uh, interest to the younger Generation, um, you know, I, a couple that come to mind. I mean, I've seen, you know, um, shipping sector. I worked on a deal recently along those lines. Um, uh, you know, I've seen family-run dealerships. I've seen a lot of um, consolidation in that space because, again, it's just, uh, you know, you've got the the young generation that's that's running to Silicon Valley, and so there's no transition plan, and so that's a great opportunity to, to pick up some uh, some. Uh,
1: platform companies. Okay, all good points. Thank you. Um, Gretchen, I'm going to put you on the, the hot seat here with respect to uh, tax reform. Uh, I think it's a topic we've, uh, we've broached in, uh, in every podcast we've had so far, and it's always good to get uh, our clients' perspective. Um, what do you, are, are, you know, are you really um, seeing any scenarios where tax reform uh, provisions are impacting deal activity or, or valuations for that matter?
2: Yeah, a couple, couple of areas. I mean, first of all, I, I think many of us in our in our world were quite surprised that they really dropped the corporate tax rate to 21% for most companies, sorry for you, accounting firms and law firms who are specifically written out of the code. Um, so, uh, But for the most part, businesses in the United States now have a much lower rate. Um, corporate tax rate. And and that was a pleasant surprise. Um, That, in terms of what impact it's having on valuations and deal activity, I mean, companies have more cash flow now. So their valuations are higher. And so that's been, um, you know, the market is robust. It's, as we said, challenging if you're a buyer, robust if you're a seller, um, robust if you're a service provider. There's lots of deals getting done. Um, So I think that, has definitely been a positive impact on valuations. You know, another big part or uh, big, uh, big result. Uh, another result. We thought it would be, it could be much bigger, but it, it really wasn't that um, limiting. It was um, a limitation on the um, interest rate deduct interest expense deductibility to 30% of your EBITDA. That is a minimal impact in. Our world and our ecosystem in lower middle market buyouts. Most of us don't leverage things to the extent that your interest expense, whatever, uh, comprise 30% of your EBITDA. So that has not been a limitation. But I think. Um, this could very well be one of those things that when the downturn comes, whenever that is, uh, there is an unintended consequence of this new provision that once you have companies starting to lose money or profits are are dropping, EBITDA is declining, and your interest expense, by definition, if you're in a downturn, is probably going up, um, you're there is going to be instances where the tax provision, this tax change, has accelerated the decline of a struggling business. Because at some point, the um, in these troubled businesses, the 30% limitation will be breached, and then that just reduces their cash flow even more. So I'm quite sure that was not intended. Um, but we all need to be on a watch for that when the downturn comes. But otherwise, um, I think tax reform has been uh, a positive influence on deal activity.
1: Our discussion with Gretchen and Kathleen will continue after we take a quick break with BDO's own Karen Baum Karen is a national partner in BDO's Transaction Advisory Services practice, where she acts as an M&A advisor.
3: Hi, my name is Karen Baum, and I'm a national partner in BDO's Transaction Advisory Services practice. And I've spent more than 25 years working in the transaction space as an M&A advisor, an entrepreneur, and as an operator in a number of PE-backed companies. And today, I'd like to talk to you about two trends that I thought you might find interesting. So, the first trend that we're seeing is that sell-side due diligence is becoming more and more popular here in the U.S. and It's becoming increasingly important as well in the current deal environment, and I'd like to kind of walk through that. So when you look at the current uh, market context, and there are certainly no surprises here. In fact, if you um, you take a look at PitchBook's latest results, median valuations for deals in the U.S. are continuing to hold at an all-time high, um, still averaging at over 10 times EBITDA so far this year. And it's still very attractive for sellers of of all kinds uh, to continue to get into the market. Along the same lines, we've also seen an uptick in sell-side due diligence activity. And that's not just because there's so much more market activity going on right now, but we're really seeing that more sellers are recognizing the benefits of undertaking diligence and are engaging in the process. And in fact, if, if it's done well in advance of the transaction or a sale process, not only does it help avoid surprises that might uh, crop up during the course of a deal, but it really does allow the seller to address issues that, that typically can help preserve or even enhance the company's value if they're um, addressed early on in the process. In addition, I'd, I'd like to mention that we've had a number of situations where we've identified ad uh, in the Q of E process that the seller was unaware of that had a significant impact on the pricing of the deal. Um, and in some cases, gave the seller a much stronger negotiating position. So these are all really good reasons at why you'd want to consider doing sell-side diligence. Some of the other benefits we've seen as well include a much shorter uh, sales cycle and, and a much more efficient transaction, in fact, as the sell-side process really helps avoid the deal from going sideways as a result of unanticipated problems and issues. Not to mention, of course, the amount of time and energy it takes uh, that you have to spend to negotiate through the various issues that crop up. And certainly if you uh, had dealt with them earlier on, you know, it would collapse the, uh, the timing of the, the sales process itself. On top of that, I think it's important to point out that in the current deal environment with such high valuations and and often even higher expectations on the side of buyers, sellers really need to be very well prepared to articulate their vision, their story, but also their financial position, um, their operations, the taxes, really the the whole operations or uh, activity of the company really soup to nuts in order to establish and earn the buyer's confidence, not only in the company, but in management um, as well. So pretty much like anything else, proper planning and preparation can be one of the most important ingredients, I think, to maximizing the value and ultimately the success of a transaction. And the best part of all this is that the benefits of sell-side diligence far outweigh its cost. The second trend is one that I've personally been interested in for some time now, and that's the growth of popularity of what's referred to as SRI, which is socially responsible investing. Um, Sometimes you'll also see this referred to as ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance um, investing. And so I I first got invested in SRI a few years ago when I read a book called Megatrends 2010, The Rise of Conscious Capitalism. And the book was written, of course, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight after the whole Enron debacle, you know, back in 2001. That really sent a message, I think, loud and clear about about social responsibility, about ethics and corporate governance and the the lack thereof um, can certainly have... Devastating impacts on corporate reputation and profits. In turn, modern-day um, social uh, responsibility investing eventually evolved out of the political climate of the 1960s, where investors who had social concerns really sought to address issues around things like civil rights, labor issues, and equality for women, you know, amongst other issues. And today, we see social socially responsible investing as a growing market in the U.S and across Europe, and it's become a very important principle in driving investment strategies for a number of funds and investment vehicles. One of the newer trends in in SRI is is referred to as positive investing, and this involves investing in companies that are considered sustainable, and that's not just in terms of environmental or in a humanitarian sense, but really in terms of a company's uh, long-term potential to compete and succeed. And so far, the returns have been very good. In fact, according to a recent Morgan Stanley study where they they reviewed 10,000 investments and they determined that strong sustainability investments consistently outperformed weak ones, which which seems to make a lot of sense. Another interesting trend trend that's emerged um, is impact investing, which is the alternative or the private equity version of of positive investing. Um, as, As you can tell, there's different types of investors invest differently in social um, in social investing. And, and so here, we see more of private equity and debt investments that are made in businesses that provide some sort of social or environmental impact. And it's interesting to note that this kind of investing actually started in the VC community where investors frequently took an active role in mentoring the founders and helping to lead um, the growth of these companies. So just going back to the private equity perspective on this, I think it's important to note that social investing programs are an awful lot more than just a feel-good marketing strategy to go out and raise funds. Um, They really do provide a great opportunity to bring about positive change. And in fact, I think it was last year, TPG raised $2 billion in its global impact fund, which was actually oversubscribed. And since then, they've invested in companies that do a variety of things, including um, improving learning outcomes for underserved communities. They provide digital education. They reduce barriers to entry for unbanked and underbanked consumers, just to name a few. So there's a lot of different types of funds and uh, types of community outreach that these funds um, are providing um, capital for. I should also mention that institutional investors have been very active in the space and have showed an increased interest in investing in PE funds that have a social responsibility um, investment mandate. Certain mandates now include exclusion of funds or companies or activities or even industries that are deemed unacceptable or controversial. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how social investment strategies continue to evolve and whether investors' interest in this area will, will actually stand the test of time. But but I think if history is any guide here, and given the latest wave of issues around corporate governance and ethics that we see in the news virtually every single day, I would venture to say that social responsibility investing is is, is here to stay. And as Warren Buffett once said, it takes twenty years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. And if you think about that, you'll do things differently.
1: And now, back to our conversation with Gretchen Perkins and Kathleen Louster. Excellent. In most of our podcasts, we ask our guests to kind of pull out their crystal ball and 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 give me uh, your outlook. let's let's focus on near term. Uh, for kind of PE deal activity and and valuations? What are you you thinking? So
0: the funny thing is, um, I laugh because I feel like for the last 18 months, I've been hearing everyone say that the (laughs) downturn is about 18 months out. So here we are, and and it doesn't look like it's imminent. Um, You know, there's no question we're in a situation now where, you know, as we've discussed, valuations are very high. And at the same time, there's a lot of dry powder out there and a lot of pressure to get deals done because, um, you know, there's the potential that if if committed capital isn't being used, it's going to be lost by fund managers. And then there's just the, the sentiment that, you know, as long as the music is playing you have to be at the dance and um you know that being said you know we're in the second largest expansionary period in u.s history and there's uh i would say the market at this point is expecting we may be in the large longest um don't think we have too much farther to go um there's no question we're closer to the end than we are at the beginning um it's very hard to you know to pick a market top or bottom and at the end there's going to be a catalyst that changes everyone's sentiment and is it going to be geopolitical is it going to be something closer to home policy driven um you know remains to be seen i think that valuations are going to remain strong through the uh, remainder of this year at least and you know what i advise um, sellers is that if you think that you're, you know, might be looking to exit in the next five years, now is time to really start taking that seriously and taking action. And on the buyer side, you know, just be cautious and try to, if you can, retain, retain some uh, dry powder for when the inevitable downturn takes place, because then you'll be in a great position to acquire assets.
2: Yep.
1: Good point. Good point. Gretchen. You must have some perspectives.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think, um, as I said, I think tax reform has extended our bull market um, and things are looking rosy for the near term. All the economic uh, indicators are strong. But at some point, interest rates will rise um, and the current tight labor markets at some point are going to result in higher wages and costs increasing for businesses will Ultimately, at some point, start putting the brakes on. I completely agree with Kathleen. There will be some catalyst, some, you know, exogenous or not um, event that will that will um, step on the brake firmly. And when the banks start um, start pulling back, that's the beginning of the chilling of the market. That's always the um, the thing that begins the market slowing down, and um, and I don't you know don't know when that will be, uh, but I would say we're you know we're somewhere in the seventh inning or the ninth you know seventh inning ninth inning of this expansion. I don't know, but clearly we're we're at the back end and. Um, That, you know, banks are very liquid right now, banks and non-banks. All sorts of debt financing are plentiful, lots of competition when we're going to market to finance our opportunities. Um, And when that starts to pull back, that's when things will will, uh,
0: decline or slow.
1: Interesting. Well, I'm going to uh, make a note on my calendar to go back and listen to this podcast (laughs) in a couple quarters and and see who was right. Right. Yeah. So, well, I would uh, I've got one more topic and uh, it's diversity. I would uh, be embarrassed if we didn't uh, broach the topic. I'm lucky enough to have both of you here today. Uh, We've got P.E. and and investment banking represented, uh, represented, represented. so uh, I, I guess I saw a recent stat that Prequin uh, uh, released some data saying that women make up only about 18 percent of P.E. employees. And I think that that number in and of itself may be debatable. Um, but both of you are, 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 are certainly highly accomplished professionals. Um, perhaps you can give our listeners um, some insight into uh, the secret of your success and really, do you have advice for other women seeking to follow your footsteps? Maybe, Gretchen, you want to start with this one?
2: Sure. Um, I'm I'm glad to see that number by Prequin is 18%. <laughs> I anecdotally feel it's 10%. You know, it was 10% when I started in this industry 30 years ago. Feels like 10% now when I go into large meetings or conferences. Um, still feels like 10%. And I think there's... I think there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, one is, um, you know, women, young women today coming out of top, you know, programs, top schools, they have a lot more choices today. Um, I think that's one of the reasons our industry has not moved the needle, um, on increasing, um, Women representation. I think there's a lot of other opportunities. They can go into many other fields. There's so many more uh, young gunners graduating from top programs who are starting their own companies and they're going the entrepreneurial route, and um, and that's great um, for our industry in particular. I think there's you know there's a lot of challenges um, in our industry. In it's a very rigorous place to do to do work. The deal environment has a lot of. Uh, pressures and a lot of travel, and um, and I think part of it is a lifestyle choice. You know, you either choose to be in this very vibrant uh, environment, working with really smart people and really hard charging executives at companies that you're, you know, looking at to invest in, and it's and it's fun and it's and it's invigorating. But the downside is that it's a lot of hours and it's a lot of travel. And so I think part of it is a lifestyle choice. Um, And we need to do a better job as an industry of um, of embracing women and asking them and, you know, imploring them to just hang in Mm -hmm. because there's a heavy bailout rate, you know, after after a young woman starts a family, for instance, Um, because there's multiple pressures and it's um, and it's tough. But I think, you know, advice I would give to young women is um, high achievers in this industry can get pretty much all the flexibility they want. You know, but you have to be good. You have to be operating at a high level. Um, Folks who, you know, I always tell young women, I've advised numerous young women over the years, you know, they're maybe they're expecting and, you know, asking for advice because they know I have millennials and I have somehow made it and (laughs) my kids are great. You know, you know, how do you how do you balance all this? Gretchen And I always say just, you know, you be unapologetic. You know, when you got to walk out of that office at six o'clock because you got to, you know, relieve the nanny or pick up the child from daycare, just be unapologetic, walk out and get back on your computer at night. It's okay if you're walking out and all the guys are still sitting at their cubes because they're going to leave and their night's going to be done at some point, probably soon after you, frankly. And um, but everybody's going to work hard. And if you work hard and if you're a high achiever, that is not going to be an issue at all. Where it's a problem is when. Someone expects that sort of um, accommodation and then doesn't kill it, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: that's awesome. Thanks. Thanks for your candid thoughts. I think that's very helpful. Kathleen, what are you thinking?
0: Yeah. So um, I also question that 18% statistic. <laughs> and the only way I could perhaps reconcile that is that. Um, You know, at the junior levels, I think that there's been a lot more evening out of the ranks. And if you look at, you know, analysts or, um, you know, et cetera, um, it it may even be closer to 50-50 or or somewhere approaching that. It's more, uh, you know, unfortunately and sadly for young women, it's more at the senior levels. And they don't have a lot of mentors to look up to because the senior levels and where Gretchen and I are at meetings, certainly 10 percent, if that. You know, mm-hmm. um, so so it's unfortunate because it, it it does kind of become self-perpetuating. You know, um, the you know the advice that I would give that I always give, and particularly for women, is this, first of all, just to to be persistent, and um, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Everyone does. I mean, when I was younger, I was much more self-conscious about that, and now I realize that the mistakes I make is my opportunity to learn, and I've made a few. Don't get, don't get me wrong. Um, and, and, and along the same lines, you know, don't let setbacks destroy you. Um, I just think that, uh, you know, women tend to internalize their mistakes a bit more than men. It's just the way we are. And, uh, you know, you got to, you know, brush yourself up and, and get back in the game. And then finally, the other piece of advice I would give, and this Goes for both men and women who want to, you know, work on Wall Street and, and stay, you know, relevant in financial services is that. You really need to be flexible. Um, You know, it's great to be a specialist, but whatever you're specializing in, that'll eventually go out of favor. And if you can't pivot, if you can't find a way to take the skills you've learned there and focus on something a little bit different, then you will ultimately become irrelevant. And so, you know, constantly learning new, you know, constantly growing and learning and, and seeking what the next opportunity will be. I completely agree with Kathleen.
2: That ability to have a broad range view mm-hmm. is essential. And you don't realize that until you're further on in your career, yes. right? You're a couple yeah. decades in, you realize that those with a more broad experience are more sought after. The only other thing I'd throw in there is um, this it's business, it's not personal. So when you have a setback or when you make a mistake, exactly what you said, shrug it off. It's business, it's not personal. It's not about you, it's just about what you do at work. Mm-hmm.
1: Listen, I've got two teenage boys, and there's a lot of stuff that uh, you guys just shared that's that's just frankly awesome. And I'll I'll be debriefing them. So <laughs> thanks thanks so much for those uh, those life lessons. Well, that's going to wrap the uh, the podcast for today. So uh, Gretchen with Huron Capital, Kathleen with Silverleaf Partners, can't thank you enough from the the BDO family. We're very appreciative of your your time and effort to to prep for the call and join me today and strongly encourage our our listeners to to go out and learn more about Huron and and Silverleaf and do business with these firms like BDO is doing. We're huge fans of them. And thank you very much.
2: Thank
0: you very much.
1: The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.
0: Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives.